This is On Your Radar, a podcast series produced at WGN Radio with the doctors and staff from Rosecrans. I'm John Williams from WGN Radio, and in our series, we are today on a podcast titled, How Do We Help Our Kids? The Mental Health Challenge. And we're going to talk about what the kids are going through in school. It seems like for a couple of years now, we've been saying, or wanting to say, post-pandemic, but I think we're still feeling and seeing the repercussions of that. So let's talk about what's happening with kids in school with Lisa Thompson, who is a Rosecrans community-based mental health clinician, and Sheila Blanchfield, who is a counseling department chair at Loyola Academy uh, on the north side of Chicago, actually in Wilmette, right? That's correct. Welcome to our podcast series. Um, I'm going to start with Lisa, though, since you're from Rosecrans and you are a clinician. What do you do? Well, I am a community, community-based community clinician, which means that I see students in uh, the community setting, primarily in the school setting. I work with um, children age three to five primarily, so the early childhood population. Well, that young, three to five. Yes, that young. And- why are you working with these kids? What are they demonstrating that requires your attention? Um, a, a lot of different things. So uh, some of it is trauma-based. Some of these students have experienced significant trauma in their, their early you know, childhood. Um, some of it's behavioral. So we're seeing a lot of impulsivity, aggression, um, difficulty managing the classroom setting. Do you imagine that that is because of the individual circumstances of these kids, or is it a function of the pandemic? Um, maybe a little bit of both. Um, you know, like I said, a lot of it's trauma-based, um, but, you know, with the kids not going to school for a couple years, some of them are developmentally a little bit behind. Right. So I but think a little bit of both. I don't imagine that a three- to five-year-old is impressed with the trauma of the pandemic. It must be something more in their family. Right. Correct, yes. Yeah, right. Um, although, I suppose, if you extrapolate it from that, we've all gone through a traumatic experience. Absolutely. Older kids, adults, are all dealing mm-hmm. with the trauma. And then the idea that you would counsel them in a public setting or in a community setting means what? Well, a lot of our families experience difficulty with transportation. There's a lot of barriers to treatment. So the idea behind the community-based or the school-based is that we're meeting them where they're at. Um, you know, for families, sometimes it's difficult to get to the office setting, and some of those kids really do need the support in the school setting. So, you know, generally, if I'm in the school setting, I'm meeting with kids either in their classrooms, assisting them with skill building, or pulling them out of the classroom, meeting with them individually in a private space in the school. Do you observe them in a public setting to see how they behave, to counsel them on uh, the behaviors that they need work on? Generally, when a student is referred for services, there's a lot of different pieces with that. So there's observation. Um, there's an assessment that we do to talk with parents um, about what concerns that they have. And then um, there is, of course, you know, in the, going into the classroom and observing them in that setting. And one last thing about this, sure. um, and that would be, what's an example of inappropriate behavior or troublesome behavior from a four-year-old? We see a lot of aggression. So um, aggression towards their peers, pushing, hitting, kicking, biting, aggression towards staff members, um, running out of the classroom setting, trying to run out of the school. Those are things that are very concerning. And Sheila, you are uh, at Loyola then dealing with kids in an uh, older age group, right? Yes, yeah. What, what is it? Uh, it nine through twelve is high 12. school. Yeah. Correct. yeah, and so talk a little bit about what you do then before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of our conversation here. Tell me what you do. 
So as the counseling department chair at Loyola, I oversee 14 school counselors, um, and there's 2,000 students, and we have an SEL curriculum that we provide. So SEL meaning? Social-emotional learning curriculum that the school counselors each teach to their caseload. So we keep the caseload small intentionally so that the school counselors can get to know each student and vice versa, so that the student knows a school counselor. So hopefully the intention is they feel comfortable coming to talk to somebody, them, if needs arise. So does each student then have a contact person on the counseling staff? That's correct. They do. Yes. Is that unique? At every school, a student will be assigned to a school counselor. I mean, at other schools. I didn't know that there was that many resources for kids in schools these days. There are. Yes. Their caseloads may not be as low as ours. We have about 150 students to one school counselor. Um, the American School Counselor standards are about 250, to, 250 students to one school counselor, but most schools around the area might have more caseloads than that, higher yeah. caseload. And even then, 250 kids is a small school, let alone a caseload for a counselor. So it strikes me as challenging mm-hmm. to develop a close enough relationship with somebody that they would open up to you. Correct, and have enough contact points with them throughout the day that you get to see what they're dealing with. But not every yeah. student needs that kind of counseling. Correct, but there are needs of all the students that they need to be known and seen by an adult in the community to feel connected. And they might have questions too, just, you know, like, what clubs do I get involved in? Which is good things you want them to feel connected to their peers. So even those students that may not have the more intense social emotional needs as counseling might have those other needs of just a little nudge as like a freshman coming in, like, what clubs should I get involved in? What sports? How do I go about this? Um, Self advocacy skills. How do I talk to teacher how do i ask them a question and not feel intimidated so how are the kids doing this year Hmm. i would say what we see there's some kids that are they're doing great with what they've been going through you know they each had different experiences during the pandemic some were able to kind of continue to socialize or they really enjoyed having older you know siblings home when they were doing that time where we're all um you know quarantining together and others, it's still been really mm-hmm. difficult. You know, some people are, have been like, woohoo, I'm done with the pandemic, where it's not that way for everybody. So coming back together and having a sense of like, you should be up to speed, which we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, that up to can, speed in what way? You should be able to know how to manage executive function. You should be managing your calendar. You should be involved in everything. You should be building your high school resume and thinking about colleges and careers. Um, you should have found your friends that you're connected to. You should be open to putting yourself out there. And I think that's been really hard, not mm-hmm. just for adolescents, for adults, mm-hmm. um, for for everybody who has really had to navigate staying at home. And it's been difficult reading body language, social cues, and now we are coming back in person. And if you haven't spent two years understanding that, your social interactions and communication may not be on par with where they should have been. Where you are seeing instances where kids are maybe behaving violently, Mm -hmm. are you seeing the behavior of these older kids as weirder or inappropriate or violent? What do you see? From my perspective and my counselor's perspective and what we're seeing, I would say it's more of an issue of emotional regulation, Mm -hmm. Um, inappropriate times to be expressing emotions in a public area, in a classroom, sharing things that should definitely be handled with possibly a clinician. And what we kind of call it is a bit of a a trauma dump. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm feeling this right now. I'm going to put it out there right now. And that can be 
pretty jarring to other people in the classroom who were not expecting that. I thought we were doing social studies, but... Oh, really? And then all of a sudden somebody unloads? Correct. What would an example of that be? An example would be, you know, sharing um, a personal experience that may have happened over the weekend. And I I found that Mondays are the new Fridays, where, Mm -hmm. you know, the joke in schools is like, just wait till Friday at three o'clock when that bell rings, and that's when you have emergencies happen. It seems like Mondays are the new Fridays now where they are holding it together over the weekend. Something happens over the weekend. They come into the school building and they've had enough. I can't do one more week of this. And that emotion is with them in the classroom. It's in the hallways. It's at the lunch table. Mm. Um, And so really trying to, one, I think, train the teachers and the faculty and staff, safety and security guards, too, to recognize these signs and then know what to do when you're seeing them before it becomes out there for everybody. You know, get them to the right people before it becomes a situation in a classroom. Maybe it's not fair to ask teenagers or five-year-olds to, um, where's your stamina? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. hey, yeah, you know, five days is a long week. Mm-hmm. Or I, I thought the weekends were supposed to be the break. We'd come in Monday refreshed. But you know, where are, where's, where's people's wherewithal to weather these storms? It doesn't seem like we have as much. And again, mm-hmm. maybe we don't. And maybe it's unfair to expect that out of young people true i think you kind of just hit it like the weekend is not enough and i think (laughs) that that's even for adults as well Mm -hmm. do you find that too lisa i do i do i think our our young people like like sheila said you know the social emotional um wherewithal they, they just you know they're there some students are there for two and a half hours some students are there for you know seven six seven hours it's a long day for you know three, four, five-year-old to be there and to keep it together all day. Is there any commonality between what the two of you have been talking about? I mean, the, we're talking about different age ranges and mm-hmm. different expectations. What are the shared observations would you think you two have? Mm-hmm. I would say just um, the social-emotional outbursts, not being able to manage their, their social-emotional functioning. Yeah. Although, I, um, boy, it would be hard to get mad at. Well, I don't know that you were mad at any of these kids, right? Mm-hmm. But it would just seem to me like I um, would have higher expectations for a 16-year-old versus a 6-year-old or a 15-year-old versus a 5-year-old, mm-hmm. right? I mean, how do you talk to a 3-, 4-, or 5-year-old about their behavior and how much of that resonates with somebody that age? That's a great question. Um, I think it depends a lot on their developmental functioning you know are they understanding i mean i think sometimes the kids some of the kids that i work with um developmentally might be a little bit lower so you know they can they can maybe demonstrate that they're angry or upset but they don't always can can't always tell you why or what's going on or what's causing this Mm. emotional turmoil inside of them they're just feeling these emotions and they don't know how to um verbally tell you what's going on and they just kind of um you know Unload, unleash it out. Would a 16-year-old be more direct about it? They do know why they're acting out? For the most part. I I also think what we're seeing with them is like they're having kind of emotional burnout too like they know what they should be doing they're trying they're doing it yet they're still having the panic attack you know and that can be really panic attack there's panic attacks increase in anxiety ocd um you know these adolescents are 
I would say this generation of them seems to be more aware of mental health and mental illness Mm -hmm. because they just have access to so much on social media. So they can tell you about diaphragmatic breathing. They can tell you about square breaths. Um, They're trying to do their coping strategies. But when you're doing that every single day, it's like white knuckling it. And there's comes to a point where they start to feel like I can't do this every day. This is too much. Well, forgive this question, but are they playing the system a little bit since they're so aware of these things? Are they almost using that as an escape or as an attention grab? I wouldn't say the majority of them, not the case. I think they really genuinely are seeking out supports. The majority of them want to be in school and they want to be doing well. Um, There are some students that I think Yes, they can kind of see this might be a moment to get me a pause during the day. Um, But even with working with students like that, counselors and teachers, you recognize it, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. Does it manifest itself as defiance? Are the kids more combative then? I wouldn't say that I'm seeing defiance with them. I think I'm seeing more helplessness. Hmm. It goes the other way of, Mm -hmm. you know, I need you to sit here and and calm Mm -hmm. me down. So we're trying to do more activities, directives, and build resiliency and grit back in them. You know, it's okay if you're getting your sea legs under you and I'm teaching you these strategies, but once you've been doing them for Mm -hmm. a month, you should be able to be doing this on your own, Mm -hmm. in your own space. Mm -hmm. Um, What about you on that? I would say I see a lot of defiance, and that could just be aged appropriateness. I mean, you know, our kids test our limits. They want to see how far they can go. And we're talking again about the youngest. Yes, the three to five-year-olds. And I, I wouldn't say every student is like that, but a lot of the students I work with, there's definitely testing. How far can I can I get with this? You know, um, I'm just going to flat out tell you, no, I don't want to do that. So I do see some of that. And that, and you link that to trauma. Um, I do, are the kids that you see in the high school setting, um, Is it? are we talking more about the pandemic, the general malaise, or is it specifics to the kids like they were in a car crash or they were in an abusive relationship or something definitely both yeah there's there's more happening for this adolescent generation too that um i think because they are so exposed to so much information and they may not know how to process it or limit it and parents and teachers may not even know everything that they're exposed to mm-hmm. um there's almost also like a compassion fatigue for some of them, too, that they just have such knowledge of traumas and things that could happen that then the anticipatory anxiety of, oh, my gosh, what could happen here? What could happen to me starts to kind of kick in. But we definitely do have students that have had very different experiences and traumatic experiences mm-hmm. during the pandemic. What influence are social media platforms having on all of this? Mm. Well... Um, I'll be watching the case against Instagram very closely. Um, I think from what I see that it has led to a definite increase in lower self-esteem with students, um, feelings that they're left out of more things. Um, it's, It's concerning because bullying does not stop, whereas it used to be in direct contact with somebody they go home and it's still kicking at them through their phones um, I'll notice when I'm counseling and sitting with a student I'm working with them on you know working on distractions or diaphragmatic breathing 
and their watches are pinging, pinging, pinging. So I'm not just counseling that student anymore. I'm counseling the group of five friends that are jumping in and giving them the latest drama from the lunchroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very hard for them, I think, to stay focused um, and to not take everything that they're seeing out there so personally. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Not an issue maybe at the younger level? You'd be surprised. Actually, um, a lot of students that I work with tell me about things that they watch on YouTube. YouTube is, you know, anybody can get on YouTube, and I don't think there's always supervision. So I've got students who tell me that they watch Momo, who is a, a scary thing that you can see on YouTube, um, Huggy Wuggy. So there's a lot of things that kids are seeing on YouTube that are actually, you know, violent or scary that, they, they watch and then they, you know, they bring that and they talk to me about that. And so I think, yeah, there's a lot of scary influences out there. Is it just the distraction of it or um, is it the fear of missing out or is it cyberbullying? Maybe it's all of mm-hmm. those, but just talk a little bit about how the kids do receive these messages on these platforms. I would say from also the adolescent perspective, what I'm seeing more of um, are false fake accounts. You know, mm-hmm. it, it would have been, I would say a few years ago, you could take a screenshot and this person sent this message that was clearly bullying and degrading to this person. Now it's surrounded by, you can't quite trace it back to who it came from. Mm-hmm. And their sense of reality or what is real is off. Like, was I talking to somebody who was genuinely my friend or was I being catfished? Mm -hmm. Is this true that what is being reported or is this a group of people making a a prank on me? I'm seeing more of that happen coming out of the pandemic. What's an example of that? From real life or make something up? But I mean, describe this scene to me. There will be students in conversations with people through social media um, you know, trying to get personal information out on sending pictures, things like that. And then there will be things saying, you know, you must give me a certain amount of money or else I will send these pictures to your whole school. And the pictures mm-hmm. that the child doesn't want shared are mm-hmm. sexual pictures or just embarrassing pictures of them? Could be. Could be pictures of them at a party where, you know, they know, oh, I'm on athletic code. You know, I can't be seen with that. It could be images that they have shared that would have been sexual pictures that they thought they were sharing it privately with somebody, but how does this person over here have it? So then somebody blackmails them? Yes. I mean, bullying to me would just be, Mm -hmm. hey, you're ugly or you're fat or you're stupid. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's more pernicious than that? Yes, and then there's also, we have issues where... um, you know, it'd be somebody saying that didn't come from my account. I didn't. I didn't send that threat, or right. I didn't say that to that. Somebody's person. hijacked my. Somebody iOS. took my phone. Somebody took my account. That didn't come from me. Where we didn't have. It was usually more straightforward. I would say, mm-hmm. years ago. Are the younger kids getting involved in any of this? Not that I've. No, I've not witnessed any of that. It's more just watching inappropriate videos, and then you know. I see a, a lot of like acting out. Well, you know, Momo said it was okay to do this, or this person said it What's was okay Momo? to do. It's um, I don't. I'm trying to think how to explain it. It's it's a scary, um, a scary image that comes up when you type in Momo on the screen, and it's it's just scary and unpleasant. 
unpleasant, but are the kids doing it because it's entertaining too? Yes, yes. So they're looking at that and sharing yeah. it and talking about it, mm-hmm. and they are four and five years mm-hmm. old. I have a two-year-old granddaughter. I, I'm getting there, but um, mostly it seems to me that age group is using the phone just to entertain themselves. Mm-hmm. They're watching a video, I mean, but from Disney or something right. like mm-hmm. that. It's, mm-hmm. more, it's more than that, huh? I believe so, yeah. Just based on some of the, the families that I've worked with and the students I've worked with. Yeah. I feel for the teachers and counselors who have to compete with all of the devices mm-hmm. that kids bring to school or have in their world. Um, is it possible for schools or parents to be more definitive about it? Like, you can't have a phone in the classroom, or we're going to not have our laptop for you to watch at the restaurant, or I don't know what the circumstances are, but I mean... At the restaurant, it's a great way to get through a meal. <laughs> but any, what are your thoughts about how the adults can monitor the hardware? That is happening. There are there are parents who are really uh, doing a great job educating themselves on what they can do. What you know, taking the devices to the Apple stores and saying, "Can you take this off? How can I see oh, to really? limit what's on this?" Um, Taking the devices away, a lot. A lot of families I've heard too will just have a family rule. Like at 11 p.m., all devices come into the parents' bedroom, turned off. And like, and then that's a great excuse for students to say to others, like, ah, you know, my parents took it away from mm-hmm. me. Like, I can't be texting you, or I can't be on Snapchat afterwards, which is good and healthy. They need to shut off. Mm-hmm. They need to learn that skill, and they're they're they need their rest, and they can just get bombarded too if they're staying up late. We've all done that before. Mm-hmm. You end up like, oh, it's one in the morning. I'm still on my phone trolling through stuff. So that's a great way, I think, for parents mm-hmm. to take back some control. Well, maybe I don't know that my kid is going through this um, abusive or bullying situation. Or maybe I don't know that my child has um, lost a couple of years of emotional development during the pandemic because it's hard to tell what a child mm-hmm. is going through. Are there any flags since you're speaking, I'll ask you, but then I'll ask you, and I'm sure they'll be different. But, I mean, mm-hmm. what what are some of the signs that this isn't normal? I would say if you're noticing that your child is becoming more withdrawn, mm-hmm. um, especially, like, I would say from social media aspects, if something is coming, you know, infiltrating your child and you can't see it, you're going to see it in their personality. Are they more sullen? Are they more um, withdrawing? Are they keeping their devices from you? Like, do you see them quickly kind of put it away when you walk into the room? Um, You can ask your students and your children for the passwords. If you're going to have an account, I need the passwords. And I would say to every, every parent of an adolescent, you need to know who their friends are. Their friends online and their friends in person, and ask them, you know, who are who are your major followers that you're following on these platforms? Mm-hmm. Who are they being influenced by? Follow those people that they're following and see the content that they're being mm-hmm. exposed to. Um, you, as the parent, can ask that, and it might cause a bit of pushback or defiance. Where's that coming from? You know, why is it an issue that you don't want to share it with me? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you've already had conversations about how to use social media appropriately. But definitely look for those signs of your child withdrawing, mm-hmm. um, shutting away, putting the devices down. If they start after like, I say like look for two weeks too. Are they 
having different interests? Are they now hanging out with different groups of friends? Um, do they not to seem, check their grades. How are their grades doing? Are you hearing from different adults that have contact points in their life that something's seeming a little different? Like mm-hmm. they just weren't their usual self-set practice or they're not participating in class as much. Start to put those signs together mm-hmm. and don't be afraid to reach out and ask the people who are working with adolescents in that school and your child, you know, are you seeing anything? You know, mm-hmm. we, we want to partner with parents. Do you have an answer to what's different now? Because junior high to high school kids have always been awful and or have had the potential to be remarkably inconsiderate to their peers. That's what I mean by that. And and generations have gotten through that and, and, and feel, maybe wrongly, that it's made them tougher or better able to manage. Um, so what's different now that we have these devices? They aren't getting real-time social feedback from their peers. You know, it was different for us. Mm -hmm. If you were going to say something to me, I could see the look on your face coming down the hall, and I could start prepping myself. I could read your body language. Um, Or, you know, I I could also feel remorseful. Like, oh, I can't believe I said that behind her back, and now she's coming up and she's confronting me, and I'm so sorry about that. There's less of that personalization, Mm -hmm. and so it's creating more of a divide in their communication skills with their peers. You know, it, it's very easy to type off a message or create a fake account and start targeting somebody and you don't have to see the immediate ramifications. Mm-hmm. And that's a loss in a lack of empathy. Mm-hmm. Hmm. No immediate consequences for those behaviors. No immediate consequences for those behaviors. Right, because you're not even in the room when it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, remorse or conflict or uh, an honesty check or something like that. I didn't say that. You're lying. But how do I get back to not just that person but to the 200 people that are in the room? Yes. I- the digital room. Correct. Yeah. So what are your thoughts along these lines? Um I would say, you know, with a lot of my kids, parents have come back this year and said things like, you know, my child was so sweet and loving and all of a sudden we're seeing all of this aggression at home. We're seeing him acting out or her um, just flat out being defiant, refusing to comply with my requests, refusing to do anything that I ask, um, you know, where they weren't seeing those behaviors before. Um, so there's, there's, there's more of that, like we talked about aggression, defiance, just, you know, um, the way that they interact with their peers is, you know, just hurtful, you know, rude, hurtful, those kinds of things. So. And I've seen some children that behave that way at that age, mm-hmm. and they've got good loving parents mm-hmm. or a Absolutely. good single mom yeah. who's not done anything wrong. Correct. Yeah. So then where does this come from? That's a great question. There could be mental health that runs in the family. You know, some we, we often see a lot of our students who are dealing with um, maybe ADHD, have parents or grandparents that have ADHD. Um, you know, an ADHD and, and oppositional defiant disorder often kind of co- coexist. So we see a lot of that because um, that's difficulty with managing their executive functioning. Um, they get angry often very quickly, and so they, they react. They're very impulsive. They don't think before they act. So we're seeing a lot of, a lot of that, too. So it's, there is trauma with a lot of our students, but there are kids that, that just struggle with those symptoms based on you know, a lot of generation, generational things, too. So do you treat those kinds of kids differently, those who are maybe traumaed and, 
uh, traumatized and those who, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, without having suffered a trauma, are acting mm-hmm. weird? I think it's it's uh, the approach that you take with counseling. Um, a lot of our kids with like ADHD, we are more skill-based where we're working on those executive functionings. We're working on how do you stop and think before you act. Um, with our kids with trauma, it's more, um, I do a lot of play-based stuff, you know, um, and, you know, helping them kind of work through some of those things. Is there a lag time between the traumatic event and the behavior attendant to it? I think sometimes yes and sometimes no. I mean, it could be a year later or yeah, months ab- later. absolutely. And absolutely. then what's happening? And at that age, maybe the child doesn't connect the two. Mm-hmm. Maybe an adolescent would more so. Mm-hmm. But now the child is behaving strangely or aggressively, mm-hmm. and we don't know what that was about. So just give me some examples of the kinds of trauma that might trigger sure. this. Um, I would say um, a loss of a family member. Um, you might see, you know, after after the loss of a family member, a parent, you might see some acting out. Maybe um, families that are in transition, so homelessness, they lose their home, and now they're having to, you know, relocate to another location. Um, maybe have to having to move schools. Um, we see some of that. We see a lot of parents kids that are in the foster system, um, parents were um, neglectful or abusive, and so they've been moved from parents to uh, maybe another family member, maybe a foster placement, and some of those kids are moved multiple times before they finally get to a consistent placement. So those are, you know, a lot of things that we're, we're seeing more and more of. What about physical abuse? That, I mean, that can definitely play a role as well. Play a role. I would. That's the first thing I think of when yeah. I think of abuse per se, or, mm-hmm. or trauma rather, mm-hmm. trauma. Um, but I presume that as awful as that is, and common as it is, it's not as common as some of these other things you're talking about. We see some sexual trauma, um, neglect, um, drugs and alcohol, as well. Drugs and alcohol in the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that an issue? Have you seen a spike in in that in the adolescence? Is that all of a sudden, an, another layer of complexity in the high school? It is. It is. They're targeting adolescents. It, it, they're not making vapes that look like highlighters for you know, parents. They're making them for kids to be able to use them in the classroom. Um, the cotton candy flavors, the blueberry flavors, the nicotine levels um, are much more addictive for the kids. Yes. In the classrooms? What do you mean in the classrooms? You said they use them in the so classrooms. So that they can have you know, their vape device on them. And if it looks like a highlighter, you, oh, it's just part of what you're using with your Right, but they're not materials. vaping in the classroom per se. Oh, students vape in the classroom. They might flip, vape in the bathroom, vape in the parking lot. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. You can tell I haven't been around there lately, but mm-hmm. I was thinking actually in the classroom per se. I still can't get my head around phones turned on in the classroom which <laughs> they're more discreet now you know there's some that are odorless um and and also and you gotta this goes back to to the addiction piece if they have an addiction and they're trying to cope with this increased anxiety then and they're wanting to get that good grade on that test they're wanting to feel more comfortable with their peers then that might be a crutch for them and they might not realize how often they are hitting it until it becomes until they get caught and somebody sits down with them and mm-hmm. they receive the treatment that they need. Hmm. Um, we didn't talk about specialized communities. That's my phrase, I guess. But I mean, um, are LGBTQ kids or children of color? Um, maybe there's other subgroups I could think of that are 
traumatized in a different way these days? Yes, and those are the students that we are really trying to work with and target knowing that they could be at greater risk, risk for suicide ideation and attempts. Um, so definitely our black females, we're connecting with them and trying to make them feel like they have more of a part in our community as well. And that has been a population that during the pandemic has had a higher risk for um, suicide ideation and attempts. Black females. Black, black adolescent females, yes. And so knowing you know, we were just talking about this earlier last week, that in the mental health field, there is um, not always a high number of black mm-hmm. females for these students to be connected to, to see, mm-hmm. to be able to see somebody that um, is in the building with them that looks like them, that's mm-hmm. through the same experiences, to be able to be partnered with a clinician um, that looks like them, that they can open up to and have the same experience. Hmm. How difficult is it to get a younger person to open up? Is it um, the appearance of that counselor? Is it the vocabulary of that counselor? How do you do that? For me, um, a lot of the work I do is play-based. So um, the kids generally are really excited, like, I get to have one-on-one time with this person. I get to leave the classroom and spend one-on-one time with this person. So, um, you know, a lot of the kids are just happy to be able to play, you know, and they're usually pretty open. Um, there are some kids that, you know, that are a little bit more guarded. So I think it really just depends on the child. But generally, if they get to play and, and they're excited about that, and then I can start as we build that relationship and the rapport, then I can start really, um, you know, getting them to open up more as we get to know each other and as they feel more comfortable with me. And then where does the correction take place? So now you've got them, mm-hmm. but then how do you steer them? What do you, how, do you, mm-hmm. how do you counsel a five-year-old? Yeah. I do, like I said, I do a lot of play-based stuff, but um, I also do some like bibliotherapy. So we read social stories um, about, you know, uh, handling our emotions. Um, I, you know, I have um, different drawings and things and we talk about breathing breathing techniques and things so there's you know there's books that i incorporate into my my um interactions with them there's well does the child know that their behavior is inappropriate do they understand that i think most of the time i think most of the time yes to some extent they do because they can they can tell me like um i got i got mad about you know and i said tell me about that and they can say i got mad because this happened and we can then i can say okay, you know, and validate that and say, how can we handle this different next time? And we can talk about, you know, we can breathe, we can, you know, squeeze our muscles and relax, and we can do these things to kind of help us calm down when we're in that situation. Really, and a a three, four, five, six-year-old can do that, uh, can comprehend that, and is going to be self-aware enough to actually try to do that? Some of them... They, you can model it, and they'll do it with you. And it, I mean, it, it doesn't always happen on the first time. It takes repet, you know, repetition, doing it often, practicing it, you know, in the classroom, practicing it at home. And presumably, they do want to be better, right? Because I could understand the mindset that said, "No, I want to act out. Mm-hmm. I get attention. I get release. Yeah. I don't. I'm three. I'm five years old. What do I care, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, do they in fact want to conform? I would say most of the time they do. I mean, there's there's always those kids that are a little bit more difficult that it's hard to tell, you know. But. Well, then how soon, how much progress can you make or how quickly can you progress mm. a student to more appropriate behavior? I think it it really is. Don't you hate that question? Yeah, it, it, it really, there's not really a one 
size fits all answer for that. I think, you know, ideally we'd like to try to see some change within six months, but I mean, sometimes it takes years. It really, you know, you can't, I, I can't really give you a specific timeline because yeah. it, it really just depends. <laughs> well, not to do a commercial for Rosecrans, but I, I know <laughs> I advocate for Rosecrans on the radio, and I've talked to many members of the staff, and they mm-hmm. say we don't treat the disease, we treat the person. Mm-hmm. We don't treat the symptoms, we treat the, the young person, mm-hmm. and what is it that we need to make you whole mm-hmm. and and and, um, and well, you know, to mm-hmm. – to, to, um, Build a roadmap, as we said in one of the commercials, so that you know how to get where you need to be. But it strikes me as being really challenging to do for somebody that young, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder, too, if you nip it in the bud when they're five, give them some of these skills, arrest that inappropriate behavior, it doesn't manifest itself when they're 12 or 16, or at least we've, we've managed to get them there. We've got mm-hmm. them over this hump. Am I making any sense on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, mental illness is, is chronic, and so it's something that generally a person has to deal with, for their, you know, their whole life. But hopefully at, at a young age, if we can t- start teaching them skills, or if they do need medication, we can get them on the appropriate medications. We can help them to, you know, uh, have better outcomes in the future. Right. Um, so you called that mental illness. Everything that you and I have been talking about, would you put under that umbrella, mental mm, illness? Um, not not everything. I would say trauma, I wouldn't consider it mental illness. Um, but symptoms like ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, is considered a, a mental health diagnosis. And um, is there a lot more of that these days, or are we just mm, labeling it that way these so days? That's a great question. Um, I see a lot of kids that struggle with impulsive behavior, struggle with hyperactivity. Um, you know, that could be, I think that could be a form of, you know, was there traumatic events early in childhood that stunted development and growth, and we're just seeing those impulsiveness. Um, it could be, like, drugs and alcohol at an early age that have impacted their functioning. So... I don't know if it's if it's all of those things. And maybe the kids aren't immune to all of the stimuli that you were talking about as adolescents. Maybe four- and five-year-olds mm-hmm. are getting a lot of stimuli, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard for them to be centered when they've got a phone and a laptop yeah, and for sure. all of the messaging that's going on around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, back to a previous point you and I were making with you, though. Um, the kids presumably do want to... I don't want to say behave, but they want to behave appropriately. They do want to get along, right? Yeah. And they must feel like some of the um, circumstances are out of their control. They are out of control. Yeah. What I do see and why I love working with adolescents is that their brains are like sponges. You know, they do want to learn. They do want to do better. They are social justice change makers. They're very aware of what's happening in the world they're very aware of what's happening with others they just need sometimes some help to click it for them like they may not be aware how their actions are impacting the person sitting right next to them Mm -hmm. but they are so concerned about the person you know across the world Mm -hmm. so trying to make it a little bit more um, personalized for them Mm -hmm. and for the most part yes yeah um we are seeing i think during the pandemic, we worked really hard to get kids connected with outside clinicians. And this year, 
the more that kids' needs are popping up and arising, it's been nice that they have been working with the clinician outside for the past year. So they do have some of those coping mm-hmm. strategies and skills. It's well, just kind of helping make them work for what might be developing now yeah. and this year for them. Well, so I'm, I'm glad to hear you describe the social justice change warriors that these kids are. I mean, um, I think it's easy to lose faith in teenagers if you're just watching the media and not in a personal setting with them in a classroom. Um, you're still encouraged by the uh, yes. personality of and the vitality of young people. I love them. I, I think there's a lot of hope with them. Uh, they are. They are good. You know, every time I sit with a student, that's somebody's child. And we all have the best hopes and dreams for our kids. And they do, too. They really do. You know, for the most part, when you call a student out on their behavior, they are like, you're absolutely right. So last thing then from you two ladies, and then we'll wrap up this podcast. But let's just give the listeners a couple of ideas about, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've talked about how to recognize some of these things and where they come from. Just ballpark me some things that I can do to help my young person or steer them to getting help. Um, what You go first. I would say definitely reach out to those who work with whatever age your student is. Schools, I've seen such a tremendous push to really help get more supports in schools, just mm-hmm. like the work you're doing, Lisa. Um, so if you ever are concerned of, is this normal what I'm seeing? Talk to those who are working with that age group. Reach out. Get to know your children's um, friends. Get to know the friend's parents. Ask questions. You didn't mention breathing techniques. (laughs) Learn all the breathing techniques that are out there. All the grounding techniques. I mean, some of those are are good ideas too they definitely are they are and you know and reach out to community community mental health um agencies we have a plethora especially in this area we're so blessed to have so many mental health professionals that are genuinely wanting to work with Mm -hmm. our children and our students Hmm. and they can teach you all those skills the grounding skills the techniques the signs the symptoms and what to do they can help you with if it happens in the classroom if it happens in the grocery store if it's happening where you can't get them out of their bedroom if it's happening while you're in the car driving to school yeah i wonder about some of those specifics like if the child is is in is not cooperating in those circumstances do you say, okay, you're going to miss school today, or do you drag them by the foot out of bed or something like that? <laughs> you want to get them you want to get them to the next step because then what can start setting in is school refusal. And then if you aren't pushing them to get to school or even just get up out of the bed, okay, get to the bathroom, change your clothes walk downstairs, then what it's saying to their brain is, you're right, this is terrible, this is scary, I must stay under the covers, I can't get to school. I'm sorry, you, so you shouldn't be doing all of those things, you, marching them through all of these steps? You should be. You, you know, should be. You, want, you don't want to say, yes, this is a very scary thing, because then their brain is going to say, yes, this is very scary, Oh, right, get so if you bed. concede, then they must go, it's justified, and it's mm-hmm. not, I need to be you, ushered through this. And you'll be safe. Can you take one step out of bed? Yes. Oh, was that so bad? No, not bad. What, and you may need to break it down. If you just say, like, we're dragging your butt and you're going to school, then that might really, then no way. You've just taken all control from them and they are not going to let you, you know, remove them. Hmm. So you take it from a softer approach and you, you break it down, baby steps for them. Hmm. And then what about you, Lisa? Um, I don't know that the four and five-year-olds are going to 
do self-improvement that way or, or mm-hmm. whatever we're talking about. There must be a different yeah. strategy for an adult there. I, I think it really starts with the parents, with the kids that young. Um, I encourage parents to, to normalize kids' feelings. Like, it is okay to feel angry. It is okay to feel sad. Those n- emotions are normal, and we all have those emotions. What's not okay is when you're angry, it's not okay for you to slap your teacher. It's not okay for you to run out of the classroom. Those are not safe behaviors. So normalizing, it's okay that you're feeling angry, but what can we do to help you manage that angry? What can we do to help you deal with that? So... Um, you know, something that I encourage parents to do is in their in their home, um, creating a safe space for the kid. If they're having a hard time, if they're angry, if they're sad, if they need to get their frustration out, let's do it in a safe space. You can, you know, a corner of their room, um, someplace where you can put pillows that they can squeeze, they can punch if they need to, something to, to, for them to fidget with, books to look at things that you can scribble, tear it up. It's a safe space, and it's not a punishment. It's not a, mm. um, you're in timeout because you're angry or you're, you know, you're upset. It's, it's a safe space where it's okay to feel these emotions, and here's a safe place, a safe place to do it. They, they are doing that more and more in the schools now, having safe spaces where kids can express these emotions in a safe way to where it's not a punishment that they're angry, that they're that sad. That is such an interesting observation because the only tool I ever saw was discipline. Mm-hmm. Discipline, you know. I mean, so if because you misbehaved, now we're going to punish you rather than un- try and understand why you're exp- feeling this way and mm-hmm. what's a more constructive way to express mm-hmm. those emotions. Yeah, yeah and, and connection is huge with, with kids and their parents. Um, like we've talked a lot about social media, the influence of social media, and uh, I see so much that parents are on their phones just as much as the kids are on the phones. And so we're seeing, you know, parents have their phones here and they're doing this and their kid is over here wanting, mom, dad, talk to me, play with me. And, and you know, they're more engrossed with their phones than they are with the, the kids. So connection is huge, just being able to have that, that one-on-one time where, you know, we're, we're hugging, we're having that physical touch, we're looking at each other. I'm telling you, you know, I'm telling you positive affirmations. I love you because you're so smart, you're so caring, you're so loving, all mm-hmm. of those things. So kids are feeling that connection with their parents. I think that's huge. Hopefully they are. How, how, I wonder how um, receptive the parents are to you've got to put the phone down. You know, you have to uh, get yeah. more involved. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where I think we as as counselors, as providers, we, we need to be telling these parents, you know, this is something that you need to do. You want to have a better relationship with your child. You need to put the phone down. You need to play with them. You need to give them undivided attention, whether it's reading a book or, you know, just cuddling with them. Like, you know, we are their first, um, their first, you know, person that cares for them. And like it, we're our first teacher, that's what I'm trying to say, their first teacher. So, you know, we can send them to school and they can learn from their teachers. But as a parent, you're their first teacher. So you have to be modeling those things. Hmm. So, yeah. That's uh, – <laughs> Lisa Thompson, Rosecrans Community-Based Mental Health Clinician. And also Sheila Blanchfield has been visiting with us at the Counseling Department. She's the chair at Loyola Academy. And very interesting ladies and, and very helpful. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This is On Your Radar. 
podcast series produced by WGN Radio and the doctors and clinical staff at Rosecrans. With over 60 locations throughout Chicagoland, Northern and Central Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, help is just a click or call away. Click on rosecrans.org or call 866-330-8729 for more guidance and information. Rosecrans, life's waiting. Life's waiting.